Welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. We want to thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. We are here to help you become a student of yourself, giving you ideas you can use on your self-development journey. And we're launching our series on the Enneagram, as you may know, and think you'll love this. If you want to dive deeper into ways you can grow beyond your personality type, go to bigselfschool.com backslash Enneagram and download our free guide, How to Unlock Your Potential with the Enneagram. Again, that's bigselfschool.com backslash Enneagram. It's a free guide, and I think you're going to just love it as well as the conversation we're about to have. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Type 8 panel. Um, I am really excited to talk with our our eight folks today. Uh, you guys are kicking off our entire Enneagram series. So we've got a whole series and we're starting with you all, uh, which I've learned is a good place to start with the body types. And so um, I'm just so honored and privileged to have you all here talking about you. You all are the experts on type eight. And so um, I know each of you all are using the Enneagram in your own personal growth and development and have uh, some really cool perspectives on this work. So we're going to just jump in and I'm going to ask you all to introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about your work right now. um, And then I'd also like to hear how you discovered that you were a type eight. What was that process for you? And Jared, you are at the top of my screen. So I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an author, speaker, and president of both uh, an organization called The Bible for Normal People and Common Good uh, Advisors, which is a family business advising firm. And I first learned I was an eight. I was introduced by uh, my sister-in-law to the Enneagram probably 15 years ago. And we were fascinated by the idea. We picked up Rizo and Hudson's book on the Enneagram and I read the eight description and it nailed me. Like, uh, I always hear it, you know, whenever you get, you, whenever you have the cringe factor, when you read the description, you're like, oh, that's not me. It's probably you. And that's exactly how it was for me. Um, and so, yeah, it was very easy. I didn't, I didn't, uh, didn't take me long. Okay. So you didn't wander through other types. You were like, that's who I am. That's it. It nailed me. Yeah. Okay. Do you know your subtype? I, I do, but now I forget. What That's it okay. Is. I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm always interested in, especially like, I guess every type, the subtypes are so different, but I've really seen that in the eights a lot. Like this, the social eight, um, I can relate as a two, I relate a lot to that and then moving into that more and more with my authority and power and strength. So, all right. Who wants to go next? Stacey, you're up at the top as well. So my name is Stacy Ruff, and thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. I'm glad I, um, you're here. So you? I was in education forever, and now I, um, as Beatrice Chestnut says, how did the Enneagram come to you? It came to me probably six years ago through my church, um, and I was just hooked like crazy. So now what I do is I train leadership teams. I consult with them. I train on I love, I train entire school district staffs. Um, I've trained a high school basketball varsity team, which was so That's fun awesome. to talk about the center of intelligence with them. 
But my, I didn't come to eight quite as easily as Jared did. I, because I'm the social eight, which if you know anything about subtypes means I'm the counter type. So I look a little bit different. It took me a little bit of time to get there. Um, and once I found that, then I had the cringe moments. Um, absolutely. But it really resonated more with me, especially the social antisocial. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so me as a social eight, you know, and you know, social eight can look a little bit more mellow, a little bit more two-ish. I actually was trying to figure out between the two and the eight, which now I almost laugh when I think about that because um, it doesn't seem to make sense. And a lot of my, like my ex pegged me as a two at the beginning because when you're in health as an eight, you go to two. And so it took me just a bit longer to get there, but that's how I landed at eight finally when I learned the subtypes, which I think are so important for everyone to know because a lot of people can't find themselves on the Enneagram until they know mm-hmm. the subtypes. So. Yep. So what was it about the social eight where you were like, that sounds right? Is there besides, anything in particular? Yeah, besides the being this, that phrase, the social antisocial, my entire life I've talked about my people. I know and a social eight is really known for protecting their people almost to the detriment of themselves. Um, and so when it started talking about that and how much you're into the justice and fairness in response to other people who might be being abused or taken advantage of that really spoke to me. And, um, embarrassingly, it's very interesting in my mind, the black white about who are my people and who are not. <laughs> and I, so that really related well to, I mean, it resonated with me that as a social eight, I know who my people are. Um, and I, I will take care of them before myself all the time. And that's one of my growth things right now is trying to figure out, okay, perhaps you're important as well, not Mm. just taking care of all of your people. And once you're one of my people, I can feel, I mean, you're just there. You're almost stuck there. So I think that's the part that really resonated with me. Okay. Well, hello, hello. Um, How about you? Let's see. I run my own business. I run a coaching business. And really, I say the foundation of my business is the Enneagram. And we will go to do and handle whatever comes up for you in your life. But um, I, I help people with the work through their Enneagram types. And I also do anti-racism education and coaching. And that's a really, really big part of my mm-hmm. business and my life. I did diversity education for a really long time before I started my own business. And I really see some of these components of looking at our identity and the intersections between our identity, our Enneagram type, um, and even, you know, the culture that we live in, how that shapes how we express ourselves, how we know ourselves to be. And so it's just a really important part of our exploration when I'm working with people always. Um, I came to my type in a similar way. It took me about two years to really land on type eight. Now I found the Enneagram through a Google search. I don't know what I was searching. I mean, I know I was searching for a professional development tool. I had recently started supervising full-time professionals and I, you know, I was in my mid twenties. Some of them were in their seventies and eighties and I felt like I needed to come correct And so I wanted to find something that was new and fresh, not just, I mean, I felt like Myers-Briggs and, you know, Strengths Finder. I thought they were fine, but I needed something that I felt like was going to give them something to really work with, not just tell them something about themselves. And I found a PDF that talked about the Enneagram that I didn't, didn't have any author. 
I didn't know who, who I didn't know that there was like people who were talking about the Enneagram. I was just like, Oh, it's just this beautiful system that does not blow smoke up your ass. So that was why I was like, Oh, this is not just the things that are really nice about me. This is all of me. Um, so I found it and I, it took me two years. I landed on two first because I took a test and every test that I mm. took typed me as a type two. And also I was a really good Christian church girl. And the Proverbs 31 woman is like, you know, the quintessential type two. So I was like, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is who I've been conditioned to be. This is who I've been trained to be. So this must be me. And eight was often the second or third, you know, kind of um, result that I got. And it took me a few years. It took me hearing from type eight women about their experience in the type and also learning more about the instincts, the subtypes to actually realize, oh, no, I'm a social eight. And everything, again, I, I just feel like I just felt so many parallels in that story because everything clicked for me in a way that I was like, wow. And I just, I, I really, before, before that, I found so many of the descriptions of the type eight to be hyper, toxic, masculine, violent, kind of like the white man who shoots up the workplace kind of descriptions. And I was like, um, this is not apply to me at all. Mm-hmm. And so it really was hard to find, you know, myself in that. And like, as a woman, you know, it's, it's described as a very masculine type. And I don't believe that that's true. You know, I think of like the divine feminine, the creator you know, this, this divine mother energy very much, you know, as a, as a woman, the eight like embodies that, that energy. And so the ways that I had heard eights talked about the way that eights were taught did not give me a clear path to finding that within myself. It took me, like I said, about two years um, and then everything made sense. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Sometimes I still doubt. I'm like, am I? And then I meet people and they're like, you're, you're an eight, Jessica. No, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. They confirm it for you. That's great. Now, I'm so glad you said that because I do. I think that when I first heard descriptions about type eight, it does feel like there's this, um, it's like, an overabundance of the power and strength and it's like using it for dominion or something. And I, so there is this really, I think a beautiful feminine way that we can talk about power as well. It's both, right? It's masculine and feminine. Um, so I'm so excited y'all are here and sharing all of your insights about being a type eight. So if people, if you are type eight, you have a type eight in your life, you are going to love this conversation. So we're going to start with talking about being a body type. So, and as a heart type, I find it really, uh, it's a far grab for me to really understand being a body type. I know it has to do with instincts. I know it has to do with action uh, or inaction, as the type may be. Um, I know it has to do with a gut knowing and kind of like an ease in your body and through the senses, the feeling and the seeing and the hearing and tasting. You just take in all that information that way. 
So how, how, like, give me your experience of being a body type. And I'm especially interested in how it's worked well for you, or maybe it's tripped you up even a little bit in, and not just your work, but your life too. So give us a, a little flavor of what that's like for you guys. And really anybody can go. So whoever wants to jump in. So Stacy, yeah. okay if I start, I, of course, I, um, so, you know, the body type falls around the center of intelligence with the Enneagram and I'm really lately focusing on it so much more. And I think mm. there are probably three or four, um, characteristics or not characteristics, um, tenants of the Enneagram that are, I feel are so important and for type eight. And for me, this gut body, I call it gut is really important in my life. Um, before the Enneagram, I would have told you, because I was a geometry teacher before I became a counselor, I would have told you I'm an exquisite analytical thinker. But once I learned the Enneagram, I realized that so much of my day-to-day, there is no thought going on. It's coming through my body. And I think I was listening to a podcast by um, Ariel Pius and Beatrice Chestnut. And, you know, in the West, we so esteem the head types. And then we've just thrown in these EQ emotional quotients lately and people don't really respect so much the body gut. But what that looks like for me is I go into action without any cognitive thought process. It's coming through my body. My body is telling me what to do. So for example, I was on crisis teams for 25 years and that's, that served me very well. I would walk into a school after a tragedy and just keep going. And I'd look around like, where's the rest of the team? Well, I think most of them were probably head or hearts types and they're back still discerning and thinking and feeling and I'm going. And so I've, I think, and this will come up later in the questions, the way it's really helped me is in situations like that. The way it's really hurt me is there are times that it really that reactivity that happens, whether it's positive or negative. And I think we get to, a couple of things. I think semantics are so important in Enneagram. And I think reactivity has a really negative connotation, but it doesn't have to. And so I think for gut people, we react subconsciously and just keep going. And then one of my real growth things right now is to try to take a breath. And that's a really fast breath because I'm a fast processor and think, is this mine to do? Do I need to jump immediately? Where Mm -hmm. do I fit? And then one more thing I want to talk about this, sorry, that I found has been really an aha moment. I'd love to hear what Jared and Jessica think about it. Um, I think another way it's really hurt is I had um, one of the things I've done when I fell in love with Enneagram besides going through certifications is I had a book study. And we before the pandemic, we went through three or four different books and people, we just got so close, Enneagram books, we got so close, we became really honest with each other. And I was talking to my nine friend and they were saying like, well, so what was it like for Nate? And I said, back to that, my people thing about I trust or I don't. But what I realized I've been doing all my life is when people were talking to me, my body and my gut are responding to what I know you're thinking, not what you're saying. And so can you see how that goes like mm. that in, in um, relationships? Can you say and that if, again? Your that body's... When, my, when I'm, I'm listening to the subtext. Yeah. When you're talking to me, I am not just hearing your words. I'm hearing everything that's coming in through my body and gut. And I tend to respond to all of that. And so that gut may sometimes may hear, you know, someone saying something really polite and respectful and the gut's like, danger, danger. 
be careful. Mm-hmm. Does okay. that does that resonate with you, Jerry or Jessica? And so I can see how that would be so frustrating for other types. Like, well, what did I say? Why are you responding that way? And it's what my gut is telling me you're really saying and feeling and thinking. So I can see how in relationships that has been a real struggle because I'm people, I'm sure people are like, what's up with Stacy? Why did she respond that way? I'm like, Hmm. And it wasn't until Enneagram, I realized that how impactful my gut is every single day and how much it leads me and sometimes doesn't lead me well. So that's part of my growth is to take that breath. And I'm sorry, that was really long. Yeah, That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear you all talk a little bit about the difference between that gut knowing and that is instincts and intuition Maybe they're the same thing because that's what made me think of when you were talking, Stacy, Jared or Jessica. You all? Yeah, I would second that. I just I think I I really resonate with that um, where you're kind of taking the 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 subtext of everything in my work as a family business advisor. That's I have to lean on that, and that's you know early in my career, I was a I was a pastor for almost ten years. I was speaking like almost every weekend, and that's where. It becoming aware of my body type was actually really important because I learned that I could trust my intuition. I could trust my instinct and I had to let go of my fear of being unprepared. So I was kind of like the only way my instinct and intuition kind of took over was when I wasn't in the box, had everything written out, completely prepared. And actually my preparation usually made things worse. It, it didn't make it better. It just made it feel safer. Um, and so that was really big and it prepared me for what I do now. There is no script with family businesses. I mean, every family is unique and you have to read the room all the time. There could just be a subtle piece of body language or a shifting in your seat. And I have to be able to explore that. So one thing I've been able to lean into is in, in personal relationships is instead of trying to manipulate the situation based on what I'm reading in the room is be more open and direct and just ask questions, ask lots of questions in my work. So a family member will, you know, shift in their seat or cross their arms. And I'll say, I'm curious, you know, how are you feeling right now? Like, uh, whenever they said this, you cross your arms, did it mean anything or, you know, and that gives them the opportunity rather than me trying to do all the behind the scenes and kind of manipulate it and say, okay, well, how do we get, you know, to where I want to go based on these things? So that's where I can get tripped up. I think is when I don't, uh, when I'm, I'm afraid to bring it out into the open and I'm trying to do things behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it can trip me up. I just, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Oh Jessica, how my about gosh. You? I love this whole Got tight body type. Do you prefer right one? Like so much. Um, there is so much that happens in the head that I am only just, just suddenly starting to realize because, you know, I feel something is true. I don't know how I know it's true. I often don't know, but I know it's true. And then I just jump in and do it. I too was in crisis response for uh, over 10 years. And, you know, when you go into a situation, you just got, you learn to trust your gut. You learn to trust what's true because when I was one of the people who was kind of responsible for handling the situation and making sure things were resolved. And so you go in and you just, you know, and you trust your knowing. And at some point, you're, you know, you have to figure out why, why that was true. What, what was logic telling me, you know, that was like, how was that all sinking into to my body? But um, to Jared's point, I, I feel like I have had this way, the less in touch with my body I am, and the less present I am, 
the more I do get into those kind of manipulative games of trying to figure out and control the situation and, you know, like kind of maneuver to put this person here and to have for this person to have this experience. And the more present I am actually to my body, um, the easier it is actually for me to to be a coach or to navigate those situate any, any of those situations anymore. Um, before I was very, you know, disconnected from my body. I, and I listened when, you know, my body was, was telling me, but that meant that I kind of just jumped into action sometimes before I needed to in my personal life. Um, you know, where I'd like cut things off that maybe I didn't need to, or I, I made a decision that maybe was a little too fast and I could have waited for a little bit more information So it was like I listened, but I wasn't fully present to my gut. And the more present to my gut I am now, it's like, oh, okay, I I don't have to rush into anything. You know, that reactivity. I also process things really, really fast. Um, But one of the things now, the more present I am, the more not just in my body I am, the more in my heart I am. And that has slown it's it slowed me down. It has slowed me down. And I'm like, what is this? Like, do I want this? Am I sh- Why am I doing this hard work? Like what's happening here? Um, because I find life to be just a lot slower. Heart stuff is just, you know, it's, it's sensual and it's slower and there's not so much posturing that I can do to try to, um, force my way through it in the same way that I do. And I, you know, it's like working on, on, you know, my gut stuff or, or even in my head, like my brain moves so fast. I can figure something out very quickly and know exactly what to do. Cause I'm just, I'm smart. You know what I mean? Like there's all these things, but the heart stuff, it's a whole new, it's a whole new realm of, of being present in my body. It actually creates more, um, access to my gut intuition, that sense of knowing, um, that's not just what do I need to do, but like how, what is the feeling of the situation? Yeah. Yeah. And your heart opens you like I am hearing all of you all talk about the more connected you are to your bodies. It kind of opens up almost like portals to something, some other information or some other experience. Uh, and, it, and you all are talking a little bit about when you're disconnected from it, how you can, can morph into that manipulative. And I'm wondering if that's the control power part of the type eight. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the definable characteristics um, I've, I've, I've given a few, you all are the experts. So I'd love to hear what you all see is these are like non-negotiables for a type eight, um, acts decisively. So you both, all of you all have talked about that unafraid of conflict, direct communicators. You know, I think that kind of, um, orientation to strength or, or, um, I don't, I don't know if power is the right word, but I'd love to get your thoughts. So, what would you add to that list? I think, first of all, I'm curious about. Uh, and then how have you navigated those those definable characteristics? Those, you know, we all have these personality structures. 
And when we're not conscious of them, they can kind of take over in ways that maybe we don't want them to. So how have you navigated the decisiveness, the not being conflict avoidant, oriented to power and strength like tell us can what that I, looks like I in your life something? because and I, again anybody can jump in i don't in. know if eights are truly are truly 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 unafraid of conflict yes, please. unafraid might be it might be close to the truth but it it's not the whole truth um too strong i often find for myself and for other eights that there is that it doesn't I'm not, I'm neither unafraid or afraid of conflict. It's just literally that things need to move forward and I don't think about it, you know? And, but there are times when I do, and that's often when the conflict is really, really personal and something that is more around my heart, around my own feelings. So I can deal with, uh, I, I have a high tolerance for conflict. And I'm happy to dive in. I'm happy to start fights with people on the internet. I am happy to hold conflicts with other people. And sometimes when it is my own issue with someone else who is really, really important to me, um, it's not that I become afraid of it. I just am a lot less likely to dive into it because that could create um harm for me. And so, you know, there is a very, you know, I would say there's a lot of strategy around like, how do I deal with this thing that actually might hurt me? And, you know, and how can I, how can I deal with it in a way that's going to get it dealt with, but then I don't, I'm avoiding these things that could cause me pain. So I just wanted to create just a little bit of distinction because yeah, I don't see it as like fully being like unafraid. There are some times when that. it feels that way. Um, but I think that, you know, we feel fear just like every other type. And sometimes there is this presentation of like, hey, so they just go into life and they're unafraid. It's just literally that fear isn't the most important thing at the moment. And it's not even that. Yeah. I love how you're saying it's got to, we've got to keep moving forward. Like there's, there's this, the, the instinct to to keep getting things done, and so therefore I can't worry right. about the conflict. It's just That's it's exactly part right. of something we yeah. just have to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> That's great. Thank you for adding that. You guys want to share how have, how have these characteristics been challenging as a leader, or how have they benefited you? How has you know any of this really worked in your favor or against you? I, I mean, I can just say a challenge um, because I think it's it's easier for me to say how it's uh, been a help to me or benefited me. But a challenge has been um, learning that forcing conflict or forcing direct communication isn't always actually helpful. So I think that's been uh, important for me where I just kind of think, oh, everyone's just afraid to step into this. I'm going to step into this. And then the reality is it's actually not always helpful to do that. If I want to bring people along who might need to learn, sure, they might need to learn to step into more conflict or have more crucial, you know, difficult conversations. I have to help them, not blast them. So it's like a, it's a long and slow process for people to learn how to step into that and I can't force it. So I, a big challenge for me is patience. You, uh, mm. 
you know, I think we've all kind of said we process really quickly. And so patience is very difficult for me. And so letting people learn at their own pace how to step into conflict and how to have direct conversations is difficult for me. So that's that can be a challenge is that patience. Can I add two things, Jared, to what you're saying? So um, you said something a minute ago that I really liked. I think one of my growth strategies right now is to meet people where they are. And for an eight, that before I became healthier was almost impossible when I was just following my gut. Um, and I heard this the other day, and I think it's so important because patience is one of my biggest issues. I've known it my entire life. Um, is that this? if the speed of a thought is X, the speed of an emotion is 10X, and the speed of an instinct is 100X. And when you think about that right there, that puts we body gut types at odds with the others because we are already 100 times down the road when the same thing is filtering through. Um, so I think what you just said is really important that, you know, and when they, when I agree also with Jessica about this idea that we love conflict, I don't love conflict, but I'm not afraid of conflict. The only time I do get afraid when I was hearing your story is when it's something that might hurt my heart, right? When it's those personal ones, um, because fear is not a big, big word in my vocabulary, It comes up, but it really is when it's the heart thing that might get broken. Because here's the thing that the rest of the world doesn't realize. I think eights are the most sensitive place on the Enneagram. The reason we're so tough and strong is because we have so many layers and so many locks and so many bricks and so many, right? Um, And so, but we can't let y'all see that because that would give you power (laughs) or control. Um, You can't put that armor down. (laughs) That's a really tough challenge to put that armor down. Um, and so I just think that learning those different speeds of those, again, for three people who are already really fast processors, I would love to talk to a slow processing eight. I think that would be so fascinating. How do they maneuver through life compared to the way, because every eight I know is a very fast processor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I've met a, an eight who's a slow processor. I haven't maybe there's like either. Some... Maybe there's someone out there, but right. Yeah. And for me, the challenge is like what Jared was saying as well. I mean, everywhere I was a counselor in high schools, someone would say, oh, well, they're just intimidated by you, which this was way before I knew Enneagram. And I was so shocked by that because my intent was so good. I was just trying to help, here's the word, my kids, right, and take care of them. Um, and so again, I think it's that big energy that comes across and the confidence that my instinct is telling me the right thing. And I'm going to go, cause I'm going to tell you, there weren't a lot of eights in high school counseling. It well, <laughs> not so much, much, many more heart types. Um, yeah. I, and so that I think ha- challenged me throughout. And I so wish I'd known Enneagram sooner and earlier. Cause I think it would have really helped. Can I throw a curveball question at y'all? Because I'm really curious how you do vulnerability. So Rare. we know that that's a, that's a tough one for a lot of eights. I think especially eights that aren't doing the inner work. You know, it's just like, oh, it's stone. They don't know. It's not stone, but they want people to think it's tough. It's not there. So how, like, what does that look like for you, you all, all three of you? Um, and how did you... And are you, I guess is the question, a place of accepting that vulnerability really is the path to your heart and to your growth? Just if you could well, share I, a little I bit about that. I have a whole community called Life on vulnerability. vulnerability. And it's like this phrase that I I just decide I've been using for probably a few years now. And I'm like, oh, this is life on vulnerability. 
okay, I feel maybe like I'm dying, but I know it's, I know I'm not literally dying, but it just feels like when I step into vulnerability, like I'm teetering on the edge of death and it can be really, really hard, but it's so, so beautiful too. I'm realizing, you know, the more that I choose vulnerability, I, who I, who I know myself as is, you know, much bigger, a much bigger person than, than when I choose to shut down my heart and close off my heart. So it won't, you know, so it won't get hurt. Vulnerability for me has looked like a lot of honesty about how I'm feeling. Um, and a lot of, oh gosh, just being present to how things are impacting me. Not like the things that just impact the world or other people, but how am I personally being impacted? And for me, that has meant working on receiving compliments and not just, uh, well, I know actually I, I did that really well. Like I already know. So thank you. But in like a, no, no, no. I actually get to slow down enough to take in the fact that you are saying something really, really kind about me, that you're saying something really, really loving from like the depth of your heart. And it's not just something to blow off or to be like, of course, you're saying that because I know it's true already. It's like, even if I know that it's true already, it's like slowing down enough to actually create space to take it in. You know, I can really walk around in the world Right. I can walk around in the world like I receive it, you know, like Mm -hmm. very strong, very capable, very competent. I kind of know that I'm awesome. And I don't say that. I mean, I say that like very, very, very authentically, but (laughs) not to say that other people aren't awesome, but there is a part of me that actually just feels really, really present to the fact that I am amazing. And I used to say, I used to think that when other people were saying that they they were have that they were like being disingenuous or that they were just saying something to say something. And I'm like, no, actually people are saying it because they mean it. And I don't get to, um, I don't get to blow them off. Like I don't get to act like what they're saying is not important. And I don't get to, um, act like I'm just actually this lone wolf who just goes, gets to walk around being awesome, you know, on my own, like other people get to, they get to contribute to me with their words, with the ways that they see me and, and expressing that to me. So that's been a big growth edge for me over the past few years around my vulnerability is actually opening my heart to take in things because when you open your heart in any way, it means that that could get broken. And that is the thing that feels like death. You know, if I open my heart, even to take in the good things, well, what happens when you bring the negative thing in? What happens when you bring in the hurt? What happens when that happens? Then who am I going to be? What is my life going to look like? And so it becomes, you know, living life on vulnerability is, there's like this teetering around like, Oh my gosh, this is a little bit terrifying, but it's also exhilarating and so beautiful. I wanted to I wanted to check to and check really with uh with Stacy and Jessica on this, but I think the big breakthrough with me and vulnerability was uh accepting uh 
that I had been deceiving myself about what vulnerability was because for me, everyone affirmed I was being vulnerable a lot. So for them, I was being vulnerable. So it's, it was a nice way to feel really safe and yet quote, be vulnerable, but I, I wasn't actually, I knew what that was, but that I kind of like pretended I didn't know what that was because it felt good to just be seen as vulnerable, but not actually be vulnerable. And so that was huge um, for me is to that when I acknowledged like, you know what, Jared, that's so you may big. think I'm being vulnerable, but it doesn't feel vulnerable to me. Um, no, that was a big what I, Often the way that's that I like talk about vulnerability. it is, is, you know, transparency and vulnerability, eights can conflate them or people can see transparency in us because we tend to, you, you can know a lot about me and it's not the deep things of me. Like I, I am a deep well. You know, it's like that you see the tip of the iceberg and I go down like, you know, thousands of feet. Like you're not going to see it all, but you might think that you do. And that conflating transparency that I'll share, you know, really important things that have happened to me, but you won't necessarily know how I'm impacted by them. And I think that's where, you know, people thought the story about it was vulnerability, but like, you don't know that I cried myself to sleep at night. You don't know all that stuff. And you're not going to when I'm stuck in that conflation. When I'm stuck there, I remember someone, I was telling a story and it was a sad story. And I, someone called me out and they're like, I'm crying right now. Why aren't you? And I was like, oh, what? Uh, 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 well, I've, cr- I've cried so many tears about it already. And I was like, I like blew it off. <laughs> but it changed my, my mind. I was like, I have none left. Oh, people actually do want to know how I'm impacted. I thought that people didn't want that too. I mm. thought that people just wanted the strong me who has yeah. overcome a bunch of shit. I didn't think they wanted the me that cried herself to sleep over the situation. Turns out some people do want that. Some people don't. And that's cool. But there are actually people who do want it. And so the more I, I separated out, okay, I'm just being transparent right now about the situation. Absolutely. Vulnerability is how is this impacting me? What are my feelings? What is my actual experience, my lived experience in that and that has changed the game. So I'm so glad you brought that up, Sharon. <laughs> hmm. That's good. Yeah. Stacy, how about you? What's your journey been with? So I was raised in a family of five. I'm number four, and they're all boys. And so I had to, and it's great because my mother, who's quite old now, she's 94, told me that the day I was born, she decided to make me tough because she knew life would be hard for me. And so, you know, I grew up in a family where you heard no blood, no tears, shake it off. We don't cry like that. Um, And for me, the vulnerability is, unless I really trust you, which people think I trust them all the time, but that's a really deep level bond. Um, If I think you can hurt me by me letting you know you hurt me, that's not going to happen. 
And so that's where my vulnerability comes in. And, you know, when you think about tears for me, obviously with that background, I'm not a person who cries very much. Now, interestingly, I'll cry at sad movies. It's almost like I give myself permission to do that. Y'all too? Yeah. Mm. Um, but, <laughs> I love that. Y'all yep, are all yep. like, yes, yes. Um, but you for just got to bottle it all up until you get that <laughs> moment yeah, where it's really acceptable. But I want to ask you too, something that when someone really touches me and my eyes tear up, is when I feel like they really take the time to see me and know that like what you were just talking about, Jessica, Stacy is not always the strongest one. But Stacy can get hurt too. And Stacy, I'm talking about myself in the third person. Stacy can feel deeply and you can impact her. And so I'm trying to learn that that's okay more. Um, and because like you say, Jessica, people can take advantage of that. I mean, I think that's where that control issue comes in, you know, and I always think that's so important, that definition that I don't have to be in control, but I can't stand to be controlled. Now, is that because I was a little girl with all these older big brothers who were always controlling me? I don't know. But to me, that's a real important thing about eights. Um, so it just has to be with that, about that inner wounded child, I think, not to be too therapist, but I mean, it just does. And if I showed her to you, would you take care of her too? And I don't think in my life there have been that many people, and this is Nate talking, who I think would protect her as well. Does that resonate with you guys? Well, yeah, I think there's layers to, uh, the, you know, you talked about those layers. I mean, I have very, once I got in touch with the fact that I'm really sensitive and I have all these layers, mm-hmm. I started peeling back to like some very early memories of mm-hmm. where I was pretty much told you know, you don't, don't cry. Right. Don't, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy who was sensitive. And so you can't cry when I remember somebody cut me in line in elementary school and I start tearing up and I get so angry at myself. Like why? And then he saw it and then he made fun of me. And like that, that's like a layer right there. Exactly. I also would say something about family trauma and background too. So I'm, uh, I'm actually a member of the Choctaw nation. My family is, uh, you know, has a lot of trauma to be honest. And, uh, I was taught as a kid explicitly not to trust people. So there's this like explicit layer of how we get through this. We are tough. We are independent. Um, and we don't trust people because people take things from you. And so that was, I think, part of it kind of at the micro, macro and the micro level, sort of those layers came up. Okay. I think you're, y'all are doing a really beautiful job illustrating the adaptive strategy. Like, I mean, what you all have just said, what I'm learning from my eight, the people that are eights in my life, is that exactly what you're saying? Like, lock it down, don't trust, uh, keep it together. And so going through your life with that strategy, and and I just, you know, I wonder about like, how, when did that start to, and maybe it was the Enneagram, maybe it was something else, that started to crack that nut a little bit where you were like, this isn't really working as much anymore like that. Um, and I think I got this from Beatrice book, uh, this being strong in order to get along in the world, you see vulnerability as a weakness and pursue power in order to stay in a position of strength. So that is, you know, when we're eights are in personality, that's the strategy, right? So how like, um, how, what, what was the impetus in your life that started you to question that a little bit? I think for me, I, um, 
<laughs> this is going to sound so strange, but um, I am was with my ex and we were at a salvage yard looking for seat belts for his old pickup truck. Cause we couldn't buy them anymore cause it was too old. And I, it was one of those Texas summers that there had been in drought. And so there were, this is going to make sense. I promise there were ruts from the big machinery. And I have a knee that's not a really good knee and I fell. And when I fell, it felt different. I'm like, Ugh, but what did I hear? Just no blood, no tears. Keep going. Right. But when I stood up, I felt like I was going to pass out. And so he's like, what do you want to do? I might like, just go find him. I'm just going to sit here in the shade. And I was really hot. Long story short, we got them, went home. I'm not feeling well. Finally, he takes me to the hospital. I've ruptured my spleen. And I am bleeding internally. And my the girl at the desk, because we walked in, I went to the bathroom waiting for them to come get me. And the lady at the desk came back later and said, you know, I had a feeling about you. You realize that if you had not come today, you would have died tonight. And I was then critical care in ICU. And it was one of those big aha moments for me that being tough and strong is not always the best thing for you. And then there were a couple of, so that was the physical side. And then there were a couple of interpersonal things because in my family, it's kind of like what you were just saying, Jared, you cut off. If people, if you can't trust people, cut them off, you know, mark them off your list. That was my mom's favorite saying, just mark them off your list. And I finally looked at her one day and I go, there's not going to be a list left if we just keep marking them off. And so I think if you added in kind of um, my religious beliefs, I had this wonderful, um, wonderful minister who was talking about Jesus meeting people where they were and just it all congealed together at a time when I was ready to hear it. My heart was ready to open to it and I wanted to make changes in my life. And it doesn't mean that I don't default back really quickly, especially when we're all in the family of origin mm-hmm. and those boys. Yeah, oh my gosh, I can go back <laughs> really quickly to that. Um, but for me, it was just a whole bunch of events that came together that I realized, you know, this isn't working for me well. What do I need to change? And plus, I almost died from a ruptured spleen. <laughs> yeah, that's a little, that's some important data. Yeah, it <laughs> was important, important data fact, <laughs> yes, from, from walking. Only I Let's learn that. from that. That's <laughs> yes. right. I would say I had two, just quickly, two phases of that. One was it was very minor, and I think, um, you know, what, uh, what Stacy said is important. Sometimes you just have to be in the place to hear it. And so there was probably a lot of groundwork that was happening for a long time. But something, it, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it was about 10 years or so into my marriage. And I couldn't go do a task. I forget what it was. It was kind of administrative, I think. But it would have really impacted me um, if it didn't get done right. And I couldn't do it for some reason. And my wife had to do it for me. And for some reason, the light bulb went off. And I thought, I've actually never known what it was to trust someone. Mm. Like, that was the symbolic moment of like, oh, so you're going to do something on my behalf that I don't have control over and it's going to impact me. And I was terrified of that. I was like, I don't know if I've ever done this. <laughs> like that's, It's been a long time since I've, if this is what trust means, it's been a long time since I've trusted someone. Um, and so that was the beginning where the wheels started turning. I started really learning to trust my wife in that inner circle. And she was kind of the only one there for a long time. And then the second was in a work situation where, I wasn't in charge. I've, I'd own my own company. I've pretty much owned my own company for most of my career. And there was a time when I didn't do that because um, I told my kids, dad needs a boss for a while. I was tired. And, and I was in a situation where I didn't have control and it was a pretty manipulative situation. And I was, I came to the end of my rope and realized me trying to stay in control and manage all of this rather than just being honest and vulnerable 
the pain was more than the the pain of the stress of managing that was more painful than just coming out, coming clean, being honest, being vulnerable. So it sort of forced my hand. And that was when it was like, and I survived that. Um, that was a big, another lightning uh, light bulb moment for me of surviving a situation like that and saying, it feels good to get rid of all that stress. Like, so my mantra has been, I'm too lazy to manipulate. Um, so, <laughs> I like that. That's great. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. So and when I get that urge, that's what I say. That tipping point, the pain gets to be more than the relief of the reward, keeping it all yeah. together. Yeah. And I don't yeah, know if it's pain. Minute, I mean, I'm playing, I don't know if it's pain so much as I want to ask you to, like, you know, how innocence is where we're trying to get to. Are you strategizing all the time and not even realizing it? I mean, just over silly little things. I mean, and that's the, it's the, yes, and it takes up so much energy, doesn't it? That when you find the employee, you can just let that go. So what does that look like? It's so unconscious for me that until I'm speaking to someone, because I would say I don't have a strategic Mm -hmm. bone in my body. I would say that to you. Like I just go from the gut and I get stuff done and blah, blah, blah. But when I actually talk through why I did things a certain way and didn't do things this other way, I'm like, holy hell, have I lived my whole life like this? Like, Am I actually a lot more strategic than I thought that I was? And I often, it's often like these little things, like the, the avoiding being controlled is a big thing. Avoiding someone having a reaction that's going to hurt my heart it's a big thing. And it it just ends up that I'm like, I do all these little things to make sure that those things don't happen. And they're not conscious. I rarely am conscious of them until I'm like talking to my therapist. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't even realize I put that much effort. I put that much effort into making sure that this outcome was the one that I wanted it to be, or at least maybe three positive outcomes, but it avoided all of the negative ones. Like there were a few options that I would have been okay with. And so we just went with the, you know, we, we, we went to avoid all the negative ones and just create space for the more positive ones. But it happens. I'm deeply strategic in a way that I, would not have described myself as uh, ever, ever in my life before. Yeah. I'd just say ditto a hundred percent what Jessica just said. And you know, it's so fascinating. I did some, I've been able to do some mission work in South Africa up in a small school in Limpopo. And I've gotten to go on a couple of um, safaris and actually where I stay in South Africa, there's just like giraffes walking by. And I don't know what it is about nature for me, but there's a place and a time there where I feel so unaidish that that's for me, Jessica, I wouldn't have realized it either. But when I'm there, I'm just present in that moment with either those children or those or the animals. And it's such a lovely place to be. It feels so um, light. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and you're, and all of that stuff that's going on has just falls away and you're just there and, or under the African night stars. Oh my gosh. It's so incredible. So incredible. So, so you're, you're leading me to something I'm really curious about. I, I didn't, about. I didn't answer the last, you mentioned the last question. I want to make virtue sure that of I innocence. do. Uh, yeah. I want to just go back just for a second because yeah, yeah, yeah. Go me, back. No, the, let's go back. 
I didn't I didn't rupture a spleen, but I did one day at work throw up in a trash can and keep working. And my boss came to my door and was like, how are you? I was like, well, I just threw up, but I think I'm okay. And so I'm just going to keep working. And my boss looked at me like, well, he didn't really know what to say. (laughs) He had no idea what to say. Let's be real. He had no freaking idea how to react to that at all. And, um, (laughs) so he was kind of like, okay, well, if you need to go home, go home. And I'm like, well, I got, I have a bunch of stuff to get done. And I realized that I couldn't continue living like that. And it was around that time. And that was maybe three or four years ago. I decided it was time for me to divest from perfectionism and to actually, you know, maybe like take care of myself and, so it was a, it's a, been a slow journey, but for me, I look back on that and was like, oh my gosh, like you, you could, you, sh- you should have been in bed. Like you should have been in bed. What were you, what were you thinking? Like, why were you thinking that, Hey, you were the person that needed to do this, that it couldn't get done tomorrow, that it couldn't have gotten done when you were feeling bad. Like all of the things, it was just like, it was a big wake up call for me that I just had a lot more work to do than I thought. (laughs) I've heard that a lot about eights as well from eight friends. That's kind of like, why would I stop until I hit a wall? And then why would I stop until I finish? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. And sometimes you won't finish until you hit a wall. There's a lot of like, you probably wouldn't have stopped. You know, you, you know, you don't stop until you physically are incapable of moving, moving on. Well, I I don't know what you guys think about the motivation for that though. But for me, it's something innate that I like the challenge of it. For me, it's not, the motivation isn't uh, like, I'm, I'm not a people pleaser. It's not because my, my boss would be angry at me or upset it's the, like I have all kinds of internal challenges. Just as I subconsciously um, am trying to strategize all day, I'm also playing games with myself all day because I need that challenge. So everything is like, if I get, I need to get this done before I go to bed. I need to get like, and that's what actually motivates me. Something kind of comes alive and that can be self-destructive because the whatever thing in my head that needs that challenge can sometimes push me beyond where I need to be. I'm a completionist. I have to get things done before I can stop or whatever. I, I one time had a boss come and go, you know, we're all going to lunch, but I guess you can't because I can see you're in the middle of this project. I'm like, yep, no, go on and go. And I, I appreciate it that he understood it. Right. And I have actually like you, Jessica had bosses come in and look at me, go, I'm telling you right now, you have to go home. Why are you here? Go home. You look horrible. And I, and I start to say, but he goes, yeah, no, go. I need you to walk out mm. the door. So Definitely. I imagine y'all need like people that. like that I in your lives. We all do. So um, I want to talk about lust. I, w- I want to talk about the, yeah, right. Um, I want to talk about your growth paths a little bit. So think about what are some ways that you are actively consciously using the Enneagram or maybe other systems or tools to grow, to grow as a better human. I think better humans make better leaders. Um, So I want to talk about that a little bit. You all have the passion of lust, which uh, Beatrice describes as passion for excess 
an intensity and all stimulation, a drive to fill up an inner emptiness through making everything more expanded. And so, you know, that's the expansiveness of the eight energy. And then the virtue of innocence, Oranio talks about as, and these are are my teachers and Stacy's teachers um, talks about innocence as responding in a fresh and brand new way to each moment and to whatever is happening here and now, almost a vulnerability to being in the moment without judgment, expectation, control, or defensiveness. And Stacy, when you were talking about the safari, it made me think of innocence. And so um, how are you all finding innocence? How are you proactively and consciously working with your passion of lust and then your virtue of, of innocence. So I'm going to say that the wording, the definition of lust has never resonated with me, but I was giggling as I was thinking that because what are our stories just saying? Well, yes, I'm going to work until someone pushes me away. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I think I was going to, I don't know what definition I was going into my, in my head. So for me, my growth path, besides what I said at the very beginning, that breath, before I let my body just take over my gut and go is really self-observation. And a couple of people I really trust who I know this is hard. One of them's a three to tell me, this is what I see in you. And I'm like, I really want to know. And it's my sister-in-law. who has been my sister-in-law since I was 14. So um, I really want to know the truth. So the self-observation and taking those breaths and slowing down and truly trying what Jared said much earlier is to just be a little bit more patient, give people time, get those head and heart times time to catch up with the instinct that's going so quickly. I think, uh, you know, when you asked about lust, I, it kind of goes to what I said earlier, but I was thinking I ride the line between boredom and being overwhelmed all the time. So I'm, I'm always on that razor's edge and it can be exhausting for my wife specifically. But, uh, so it's really easy for me to overcommit because I'm like not quite challenged enough. And then it's like too much, too much, too much. Um, so, you know, in 2016, I actually had a year of no, where I just said no to everything besides my core job. And that was really eye opening for me. I felt so good. Every time I said no, I didn't actually feel regret. I felt really good. I felt uh, like I had energy. I was able to be more spontaneous because my schedule wasn't, you know, filled up to the max. Um, so that was really good. And I've since kind of let, I'm not a hundred percent no now, but I, I carried those lessons with me. So I think that was really helpful to feel empowered by saying no and realize it didn't sort of take away a core part of who I was, which was really nice. Um, and then I think with the virtue of innocence, what I bring, I am, I think one of my core strengths is I'm actually very good at being present with people without judgment. Um, and I, I like to bring that to my team because I, I love giving a befuddled face when someone over apologizes for something that I don't think is a big deal. And just to bring that presence of like, I'm not sure why you're that upset about this. This is no big deal. Like we'll figure it out. And to sort of just mirror no judgment and, and help them kind of move along in that journey of just acceptance and not needing to judge it good, bad. It just is what it is, especially around feelings. Um, I'm, I'm often around a lot of uh, religiously trained conservatives. I don't know how to say that. Uh, cons- conservative uh, pe- faith traditions. 
And that's a really hard for them. Everything's good or bad. And so, ah, oh, I felt this and now I feel guilty about that. I felt, and so to be in a place where I can just reflect no judgment and they can see that it's okay to, to live without judgment. Um, what a gift. that's kind of my innocent piece, I think. And being okay in, um, in paradox, like that ambiguity or like, you know, you know, I, I think a lot of us that are in personality, it's kind of whatever type we are, we need it one way or the other. But as we grow in awareness, I think there is, I'm learning, even in me, it's like I'm, I'm, there's a tension and I'm moving in this tension and learning that things can be gray. They can be, there can be this ambiguity and I can be okay with that. And I can be okay with that with myself and other people. And that's what it reminded me of. And, and I feel like I, yeah, I feel like I've Jessica, always been great you? at pulling people in the their ambiguity, but giving myself that as a gift is not something that I have always been really great at. So, you know, um, part of my, you know, my work has been to actually allow myself to see my life in shades of gray, in color, even if they're just pastels, even if, if they only make it to that, even if we can't get to like the vibrant colors, you know, to start, you know, expanding myself in that. My work around innocence has been inner child work. Like, like little, like little Jesse at some point saw that little Jesse needed to protect herself. That little Jesse needed to be the adult. That little Jesse was not going to be taken care of by other people. And the decisions that little Jesse made because of that, um, you know, are, are really, really important. And so for me, it's doing the work of honoring that little Jesse felt a certain way. It's honoring, you know, that little Jesse is not in those same circumstances anymore. And that she can actually rest and go play and go swing and, you know, play, play make-believe and have fun and color and, you know, be just recklessly happy and joyful and skip and all of those things. So for me, part of my work has been what does it look like for me to actually be in touch with the little me that I have stuffed down in order to make sure that I am safe? You know, I can't be unprotected in the world. The little Jesse that's really innocent and beautiful and believes the best in the world, she didn't get to, to, to have a lot of time in, in life. Because of the pressures that you can't trust anyone, because the world, you know, is going to take advantage of you, you know, because of all of those things that are sometimes cultural conditioning and sometimes conditioning because my Enneagram type eight structure hurt it that way. And so that's the way that little Jesse internalized it, you know, so it's been a lot of like when I'm feeling defensive when I'm feeling scared what do I need to do to protect little Jesse so that you know the type 8 structure doesn't have to be the default go-to that I can choose to slow down and I can choose another way the more in touch with her I am 
Um, the more I do see in color, the more vibrant the world is, the more joy there is, the more um, innocence I see, not just in myself, but in others, the more compassion I have for myself and others. And so I have loved being able to um, cultivate a relationship little by little with the little me that's still there that wants space to be free and to love with abandon. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sure. And it's so interesting because I think we all, regardless of type, have that kind of inner core in us that's so wounded, so lost and confused. But the way that we deal with that, those emotions is so different. You know, mine would never be to get tough or feel like I'm going to be strong around it, but it certainly is, you know, it's my two way of of managing yeah. this, that woundedness. Do you all have time for one more question? Can I do one more? Okay, we good. Because I want to end, I, we're, we're talking about growth path. And I, I think, you know, the way that I'm learning and talking about, I'm being trained on um, wings and arrows, I think is really important. And so I wanted to ask, I'm just going to combine them. If you all could talk a little bit about your Let's see, your wing of seven and nine and your arrows of five and two. Um, how, if at all, are you com- making conscious moves to either wing or either arrow? Uh, and even just like right now, like right now in your life, um, what that looks like. If you're actively trying to grow in those areas, bring those characteristics from these other types into any practices, anything that you're moving through your day with, it's helping you become a whole person through your wings and your arrows. I would say that and I'm not consciously doing anything around wings or arrows. I don't actually teach wings in my own work. Um, Cause I think there's so much work to do with just our core type <laughs> um, often. But what I will say is that for me, what the, the work that I've been doing personally is yes. around, um, <laughs> centers of intelligence and that repressed center, that heart center. So that's been like the, the deepest, the slow, slow, so slow y'all so slow, but the deepest work that I've been doing has been lately around that getting in touch with my heart, letting my heart be online, letting my heart feel all the things, even the complex feelings, even the, you know, like the, that the paradox that I feel like multiple things that feel in conflict and how can it all be true? And, you know, like it's not easy, easy to put into its box. Um, but seeing also the beauty of things that can't be boxed and put in their place um, to, you know, which is a way of, of keeping myself safe, you know, in the world is like, it's much easier if you're in this box and you're in this box and this person's in this box and this thing is in this box. And that's how I keep myself safe. So not compartmentalizing my emotions has been, I've lived a much fuller life of much, much fuller life, but I'm not consciously doing any of the arrow work right now. I would say. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. I would, I would now I'm just curious say, uh, kind of if you are and what that looks like. Jared, yeah, for you? me, yeah, the, the arrows were actually quite important to me. And that's, you know, in a prior life, I was a, I was a professor of philosophy. I taught at a university. And so I was in the academic world and realizing that that was a really unhealthy space for me because I, I went to that five under stress, like my need to control, I would go to, I have to be the smartest person in the room. And it was blocking my ability to trust my intuition. And my wife still says the, the day I quit my PhD program was the happiest. She's, you know, the most proud of me she's ever been because I never quit anything. Yeah. And to get kind of out of that headspace where I had to do it to feel it wasn't a healthy, it wasn't a five motivation. It was a control motivation. And so that was really important. I felt like as an eight, I was holding these tensions between the five and the two in a lot of ways. And, and so to see very practically, I had to get out of this world as a, a the five world, as I thought of it, like the academic in my head space all the time and move to the heart space mm-hmm. to being helpful um, was really, it was a really kind of turning point for me. So that, that, five, eight, two dynamic has been really helpful for me. And I would just, for me, I interpreted that too exactly as the way Jessica said of how do I open my heart to people and truly be helpful to people and not when I'm being helpful, I'm not thinking of my own self-protection. And that's really important um, is that true help is, is thinking about what they need and not trying to always manipulate it so that they can get what they need, but I can also protect me and do what I need. Um, so that's been how I've integrated those for myself. Great. Stacy. Um, so for mine, it's a little bit different. I, I feel like of the three of us, I may rely on my gut body the most. <laughs> um, and so trying to get out of that again with that reactivity and the breath. And then, you know, for the social eight, the growth path is to, cause I'm really great at doing for everybody else. And so the growth path for the social eight is to finally realize that you, what your needs are and what you need done for you. And even saying that it's the first time this whole conversation I feel in my stomach, like, yeah, not really, you don't need that. And so I'm trying to become more conscious of that. Um, like, would it be okay if I actually said, well, I need this today. Could someone step up and do that for me with knowing the whole fear we've talked about of What if I don't, it doesn't happen. Then I get hurt again and the wall gets thicker. Um, because I am a doer and a giver in my profession. So I think really trying to see, and especially post pandemic, what does that look like? How can that play out? How can you do that safely? There's the eight word for trust, right? Um, and then keep, keep trying to keep my gut in a little bit better balance instead of just letting that lead me through. Every I also, Stacey, I'm, I'm doing work around. Path. Well, I'm doing a lot of work right now. I'm in a, I'm in a, 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 a deep, deep time right now of, of my personal stuff. <laughs> but it me is too. I'm with you right there. Deep time. This, yep. Oh my gosh. Like, yep. I, I just got really flushed. I'm <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> But like I felt it <laughs> dealing with my own heart, that social eight work of like I get I get to be important, you know. I spending all this time focusing on other people's stuff and making sure that everything's functioning and that the world continues to turn. 
And as I do this heart work, it's so funny because as I do this heart work that I've been talking about, I've been processing a lot of grief. And I am now very acquainted with the sadness of the grief. And now I'm turning into the anger of the grief and tapping into the anger that I feel not just for the injustices in the world, but for the injustices that I've experienced for the times that I've put myself to the side in order to make sure everything's functioning for the times that other people have let me put myself to the side. I feel like there is this deep, deep, deep anger that needs to be expressed on my own behalf. And I have to be honest that is terrifying to me right now. It's almost, don't you feel, Jessica, it's like yeah. that little inner wounded child. It's like, oh, what about me? What about me? Are you ever going to give to oh me what you give and to everyone that. else? And what I, uh, I've, I've been in this dialogue with Rage, and what Rage said to me yesterday was, I want to protect you the way that you protect other people with me. And I was like... And I was shocked. I'm still shooketh right now. <laughs> still processing through what that looks like for me. But yes, it, it absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's the hardest work. Because if we recognize that little inner wounded child, if you, if you peel off all those layers and rocks and locks and everything and open it up, well, then someone else can get into and some of the hard stuff too. So just to be able to say, I know you're there. I haven't forgotten you. Um, and I think, I think surround ourselves with safe people yes. while we're doing this really deep inner work uh, because it is vulnerable. Um, and I don't think it's meant to be done with everybody. I think we do get to be choosy who we, who we let into it. And I'm just going to add on there, I think eights are even more choosy. So maybe eights allowing there to even be a safe, you'll agree, right? When you say that, I'm like, well, who would that be? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, it has to really, really, it's a, a process to get to that where you're going to be able to see that little girl's fingertips going, what about me? I'm here. So. Oh, that's so good. I don't want to end. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we're getting at this really beautiful spot where I think people hearing this, eights or not, um, regardless of type, can start to understand the power of this work. Um, I just want to say thank you. I'm deeply humbled that you all spent this time with me today. I'm deeply grateful um, that you're sharing your hearts as you're discovering them and, and learning and opening them up. Um, to people, you know, hundreds of people that you've never even met, you know, they're listening and you're going to be teaching. And, um, and I think especially for the eights out there, creating some safe place to kind of come land for a minute and really think about this work. Um, so that's, that's my hope. And I'm just really grateful that you all have been a part of this. So thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks again for tuning in to the Big Self Podcast. We are here for you in learning life, leadership, and love. Don't forget to check out our free guide to the Enneagram, How to Unlock Your Potential with the Enneagram at BigSelfSchool.com backslash Enneagram. And we look forward to seeing you next week.